Hi, everybody, and welcome to the third in this week's uh, Spotlight on British Politics that UK and Changing Europe is organising. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted today that we are going to be joined by four very distinguished academics to talk about can the Constitution hold? Rather big question, I think. I'm not sure that last week's elections necessarily put that under much more stress than it was before, but we'll see whether our panel agrees with that. Um, May not. But with me today are Professor Nicola McEwen from the Centre for Constitutional Change and a senior fellow at UK and a Changing Europe. Catherine Barnard, uh, Professor of Law at Trinity College, Cambridge, and a senior fellow at UK and a Changing Europe. Professor Meg Russell, Director of the Constitution Unit at University College London, and a senior fellow at UK and a Changing Europe. And missing out on that accolade, but welcome nonetheless is Professor Tony Travers, who has been studying government for it seems like ever at the London School of Economics. Uh, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior research fellow also at UK and a Changing Europe. So welcome to this event. Uh, I know that yesterday, when my colleague Paula Surridge was chairing an event on national ad identities, there seemed to be a torrent of questions about constitutional issues, and she advised you all to hold your fire then so they could get on and discuss Britishness, Englishness, Scottishness or whatever. Um, but do fire away now in the Slido. Please, if you see someone's asked a question that is a not quite as well written as you would have done it uh, version of uh, your question, please upvote it because otherwise if there are just too many questions, I'll undoubtedly chop off uh, some of them and not get to them. So it'd be great to know what you really, really want us to put to their distinguished panel. Uh, but what we're going to do is start off with a bit of chat among ourselves. And I'm going to ask you for each of our panel in turn to answer the quiz question for today. Can the constitution hold? Nicola might say that the Scottish election results are the area which will put the constitution under most pressure. But uh, where are we going up in Scotland. Thanks very much, Jill. Before I get to that, I'm, I'm struck by um, this whole topic of the constitution and I gave a, a talk to the Citizens' Assembly of Scotland the very first time it met and had spent ages preparing this talk on the constitutional arrangements in the UK. And the very first question from the floor was, what's our constitution? So I thought we should probably address that because we've all probably had students that say the UK doesn't have one. And of course the UK doesn't have a codified constitution, but it does have a set of constitutional arrangements made up of the, the laws, the rules, the conventions that underpin our political system. So to answer your question, I'm gonna focus on just one aspect of that, which is the territorial constitution, the set of arrangements and rules that uh, help to um, hold the different constituent territories of the United Kingdom together. Can it hold? Um, million dollar question, I guess, which I'm not going to try to answer, but there are definitely pressure points. And the pressure points have come particularly from Brexit, which has placed pressures on the devolution arrangements in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And some of the conventions that have underpinned all of those, particularly one called the Sewell Convention, um, which we might come back to uh, in a wee bit. Um, there are also all sorts of talks about whether the UK could move towards a federal system 
um, so that there is something a bit more symmetrical across the whole of the United Kingdom to finally sort out that problem of how England um, is governed. One thing I would say about the UK constitution is that because it isn't codified, it has been quite flexible. And where there is pragmatism and political will, it is possible to adjust the constitutional arrangements to accommodate uh, different um, demands from different parts um, of the United Kingdom. But there is one very big demand emanating from the Scottish results, which of course would be quite difficult to accommodate, mm -hmm. and that's uh, the big issue of independence. So if you have federalism or some other form of, of territorial structure for the United Kingdom, it is premised on a willingness to live together within the same state, and that willingness from a Scottish perspective cannot necessarily be taken for granted. And Nicola, can you just explain in a couple of sentences why Brexit has put the devolution settlement under such pressure? Um, as the UK government repeatedly says, we voted as one UK, uh, a UK nationwide poll, and that vote was to leave. And the government has fulfilled that mandate to leave. So why has that caused particular problems with the devolved settlement? Two reasons. One is the politics. So it was a UK-wide mandate for sure, but it wasn't um, uh, one that was um, reflective of preferences throughout the United Kingdom, and in particular in Scotland and Northern Ireland, where you had clear majorities uh, that opposed uh, Brexit. But that didn't matter to this massive constitutional reform uh, that took place. So that's one thing. Second thing is that um, devolution, when it was introduced, was within the framework of the EU's regulatory umbrella. And that sort of masked some um, differences and divergences um, that could take place within that. When you bring those competences back, then it creates some potential issues um, around barriers to trade, the UK's own internal market. And the approach that the UK government has taken to shore up the UK internal market has undermined the authority of the devolved institutions. So uh, those are the, the, the main areas. Thank you very much, Nicola. So we will come on to a, a lot of that, including I'm very keen to pick up this theme of um, whether you know, we need to start thinking about codifying some of this rather ad hoc uh, set of constitutional arrangements that you described so well. Meg, I want to come on to you about where we are in Parliament. After all, we now seem to be back in a sort of rather more normal phase of Parliament, aren't we, after all those Brexit tensions with uh, with a strong majority government. And that's, after all, what our system is supposed to be to deliver. That's why you put up with uh, the uh, vagaries of first past the post. So is it back to business as normal in Parliament or is there pressure there too? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I would, I would, the COVID Parliament has been far from normal. Uh, nobody's there. They're all voting by proxy. They can't talk to each other. It's, it's the weirdest Parliament I've ever seen. So the 80-seat majority uh, might bring us back to something familiar, but nothing else is familiar at the moment, I would say. But maybe we're getting there. Maybe we'll be there soon. Um, I was going to highlight a different set of areas, which I think Catherine will also talk about, uh, which is that while the devolution pressures are maybe sort of unintentional on the part of the government, something that they've got themselves into without meaning to, um, the government has also courted a degree of controversy on the constitution. Um, the um, 
2019 uh, manifesto famously included on its page 48 promises for constitutional reform and a desire to rebalance between government, parliament and the courts. And that has that appeared also in the Queen's speech last week. So one question is, what does that rebalancing mean? I mean, I've been studying parliament in British politics for a very long time. Um, and I've spent quite a lot of my life arguing that parliament is more powerful uh, than people think, because there's a there's this kind of um, stereotype of Parliament as being a rubber stamp. Um, but no sooner I've done that than the government seems to start arguing that Parliament is too powerful. Um, so this is is a bit confusing. Um, in terms of the rebalancing that's on the agenda specifically from the Queen's speech, one of the key things is the desire to repeal the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which some people think um, fueled the problems over Brexit. Personally, I don't particularly agree with that. I think they were caused by other things. Um, but the repeal of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act would return prerogative powers to ministers, taking them away from Parliament. And the, uh, the bill also contains a so-called ouster clause uh, to try and shut the courts out of decisions um, on dissolution when general elections should be held. Um, that's a controversial thing to do as well, which also kind of goes against the grain because recent trends have been for prerogative powers to be gradually transferred from government to parliament in order to ensure democratic accountability. Um, on the courts, I think Catherine will probably talk about that uh, quite a lot, but the role of the courts in policymaking has been very controversial under this government as well. And of course, as, as Nicola says, with respect to devolution, the root cause of a lot of these tensions has been Brexit. So Parliament's resistance in an environment of minority government with divided parties, which I think are the real reasons, but the resistance in Parliament to, re to Theresa May's deal and then the Supreme Court's intervention to um, put Parliament at the heart of decision making caused a lot of aggravation to the executive. And of course, another part of the um, landscape there was another kind of constitutional institution and the effects of that, the effect of the referendum. Uh, so the referendum was presented by some people, not least Boris Johnson, um, as pitting the people against Parliament. So there were some very harsh words about Parliament's role in blocking the will of the people in the Conservative Manifesto. And Theresa May also, like Boris Johnson, kind of used the manifesto to claim that it should be possible to dodge parliamentary accountability because there was a sort of um, direct mandate from the people, which is quite an unusual thing in British politics, obviously. So the referendum had this ironic kind of result of, on the one hand, giving power to the people but actually strengthening the executive against um, the other kind of institutions that might normally hold it to account. And COVID, I think, unfortunately, has further boosted that. So the need to take emergency measures alongside the difficulties of parliament meeting mean that the government has been able to operate with very little parliamentary accountability over COVID. And this is something we need to be really careful about, this accrual of central executive power. Um, and it goes alongside other worrying trends in terms of executive accountability, departure of senior civil servants, the prime minister's ethics advisor going, sidelining and threats uh, to uh, constitutional regulators and excessive appointments to the Lords. All of these strengthen the executive. 
Indeed, all of them do have some rather uncomfortable resonances with the patterns of democratic backsliding, so-called backsliding that we've seen uh, in many other states. But I think that there are some sort of further ironies and tensions here. Uh, the government might think that by removing checks on its power, it makes its life easier. But I would argue that constitutional checks are there for a reason. And if you take them away, it becomes much easier for governments to make mistakes. So a government that isn't properly scrutinized is likely to be an error prone government. And there's also, and this might lead to what, what Catherine's gonna talk about, a kind of tension between this relationship between government and parliament and the courts. Ironically, if the government tries to disempower parliament, for example, by passing excessive uh, delegated legislation, which has happened on Brexit and COVID, or indeed through the Fixed Term Parliaments Act by removing the dissolution power from parliament, returning it to the executive, you actually kind of invite the courts back in. <laughs> Um, so I think that this disempowerment of parliament is uh, a foolish thing in the longer term, and it leads to tensions both with parliament itself, but also may actually enhance the tensions between the government and the courts. Do you think at the moment that the government is particularly worried about parliamentary censure, um, the sort of normal accountability mechanisms that you know, ministers feel obliged to stand down if they've misled parliament or you know if they come in for a really rough time trying to defend a policy uh, just don't necessarily the government doesn't seem to think some of these disciplines really apply to them um, yeah I mean I think we have seen erosion of some of those norms I mean erosion of constitutional norms in general uh, has been a theme of the the Johnson uh, the Johnson premiership going back beyond the general election, but also to an extent, I think um, in this whole long period post the referendum, there's been a lot of pressure on constitutional norms and there's been some quite sort of extreme examples, obviously the prorogation of parliament on the one hand by the government, uh, which could be seen very much to breach norms, but then also activism by backbenchers to seize the agenda of the House of Commons, which was also a very unusual thing. But I, I think at the moment, um, COVID just makes everything so strange. I mean, you know, ministers are not appearing in front of a packed House of Commons as they usually would. It's very difficult to get the sense of the mood in Parliament. And I think that some of the things that have happened, you know, maybe I wouldn't want to name any names, but we have seen some controversies about the behaviour of certain cabinet ministers, either on policy or, you know, outside the policy sphere. If they had been having to appear on the floor of a packed House of Commons, I think they would have felt much more pressure than they have done in the current environment. And plus, I would add to that, that, of course, the Labour Party um, in these emergency times has been largely supporting the government on the central planks of policy. So we haven't very often been in a situation where backbench um, backbench concern on the government side has been really dangerous to the government. So we've seen the COVID recovery group, for example, pushing back against lockdown measures. But everybody knows that if push comes to shove, Labour would support the government on that. But if we can get back to normal politics, I think it's much, much harder to withstand that kind of backbench pressure. Thank you, Meg. So Catherine, uh, Meg was highlighting lots of areas where the government has been uncomfortable about the role of the courts. And we saw in the prorogation decision, the Supreme Court almost 
feel that it was obliged to act as a bit of a constitutional backstop on overmighty executive uh, toying with Parliament at its will, more or less because there wasn't any other constraint if they didn't want to do that. And that seems to have provoked some of the sort of concerns about judicial review and things like that. So, so where are relations between government uh, and the judiciary? I think in a word, bad, and they're gonna get worse. And um, the reason I say that is because this government seems to be absolutely struck tunnel vision towards the notion of parliamentary sovereignty in the purest Dicean 19th century form. And it's a version of parliamentary sovereignty that brooks no argument. And just to, just to remind you what parliamentary sovereignty means in the Dicean sense, because I still think it's that version of parliamentary sovereignty that um, underpins um, what this government strongly believes in. And what Dicey says is that the sovereignty of parliament um, uh, uh, means that parliament has the right to make and unmake any law whatsoever. That's a bit that's well known. What's less well known is the, the bit that comes after it. And no person or body, so including the courts, um, is recognised as having a right to override the legislation of parliament. And so this version of parliamentary sovereignty that you see from Dicey is one that puts parliament in charge and it brooks no control, no legal control. There might be political control. Now, you might say, well, that's all right, because Parliament is uh, made up of democratically elected MPs. But of course, in our system, we don't have a strong sense of separation of powers. And of course, going back to the very point you made at the beginning, Jill, about um, the fact that uh, the executive essentially controls the agenda of Parliament. And of course, the executive that they can whip uh, the, cap the, um, the MPs to vote for the way the executive wants to go. This, of course, essentially means that there is a very strong push, a very strong emphasis on protecting the ability of the executive to do what it wants. So this version of parliamentary sovereignty that Dicey has advocated um, leads to what some people talk about having, as of the UK having a political constitution. There is no role for the courts in quashing acts of parliament. Uh, there's no sort of hierarchy where certain um, uh, acts will be challenged against other higher norms. All of that is gone. Acts of Parliament are top dog in our constitution. Now, of course, the world has changed dramatically since Dyson's times. Nicola's already talked about the devolution settlement, but we wouldn't just talk about that. We would talk about, first of all, EU membership and still um, our um, membership of the European Convention on Human Rights. And what we also see is the development of a much stronger sense of the rule of law as part of our democratic system. And so what you see, and I cut a very long and complex nuanced story short, is that with the rise of these other factors, we have a much more multidimensional, richer constitution, a much a constitution which is more nuanced, which requires a careful balance and uh, requires quite a lot of trust and comity between the parts. And those parts include the courts and the courts um, feel themselves as equal partners uh, and courts that should respect um, what the other parts of government are doing. 
And so some people say, well, what we've seen in the last 20 or so years is the emergence of not political constitutionalism, but legal constitutionalism. And so there's been a much greater role, a much more dominant role for the courts in striking these balances between the different uh, parts of government. Now, what we've seen um, with this government in particular, um, but we've seen throughout the Brexit process, we see questioning of who are these judges? How dare they question what the democratically elected um, uh, members are doing? And particularly with the enemies of the people headline, of course, what the, uh, the voice of the people want. And what we also see is now um, a quite serious challenge to judicial review, and I'll come back to that in one moment. But I think what's really telling is to look at Suella Braverman, uh, the um, Attorney General's response to the Internal Market Bill. You'll remember in September 2020, there was a plan to uh, renege on commitments in the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, albeit in a um, specific and limited way. And the argument was run, well, of course we can do that because Parliament is sovereign in the Dicean sense. And what um, Suella Braverman said um, to justify doing what she had done, um, or at least was proposed, is that in the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in, it's important to remember the fundamental principle of parliamentary sovereignty. Parliament is sovereign as a matter of domestic law, and um, uh, it doesn't um, encompass legislation in breach of the UK's treaty obligations. And so you have this very domestic-centric, uh, uh, politics-centric, Dicean notion of um, parliamentary sovereignty. And so I think where we're at now is that you see parliamentary sovereignty as the Everest, as the steamroller that is going to drive through and trump all other principles. And if I may, I think the final point to note is the very striking observation in the um, preamble or the foreword written by uh, Robert Butland, uh, the Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice, to the government's response to the independent review of administrative law. And what he says, which is really striking, and it goes to the core of I think, what we're talking about, is he says that the courts are the servants of Parliament. The courts are not equal partners. The courts are not there to uphold the rule of law. He says uh, the courts are servants of Parliament, affirming the role of Parliament in creating law and holding the executive to account and affirming that the executive can be confident in being able to use the discretion given to it by Parliament. But what you're seeing here is this reassertion going back to basics. Parliament is sovereign. Parliament uh, wins and that the courts are increasingly marginalised and the courts can't be trusted. Okay, I'm going to ask Tony to bring this all together. I mean, hasn't the UK just basically always been a sort of vital Westminster dominated, over-centralised, over-mighty executive? I think I remember reading about this when I was a politics student um, many decades ago, Tony, when you were... Um, young student as well. I mean, is this not just a sort of reversion after a sort of, you know, 40 year aberration when we encumbered ourselves with some of these annoying EU constraints and had some periods of minority government? Has anything really changed? Well, it certainly is a reassertion of the concept of the United Kingdom as a unitary state. 
I mean, for some time I tripped over talking about these issues, uh, you know, using the concept of quasi-federal. I'd say Britain's become a, the UK's become a quasi-federal country, I'd say. What I think has happened, and you're right, I mean, the way England, then England and Wales, then Britain, then the United Kingdom um, emerged, you know, in the shadow of a centralised version of England that had been developing since, you know, the 9th, 10th century. It was a centralised unitary state, single currency, very centralised government, all of that's true. But there was a, the EU, joining the EU, that clearly removed some power from uh, the UK Parliament and government. Uh, Self-evidently, the devolution settlement of 1999 uh, had a profound effect. Uh, given the failure of the earlier efforts at devolution in the 70s, there's no doubt that uh, what happened in 1999 set in uh, train what you know, has been described again and again as a process, not an event. So there was Tony Blair thinking that devolution to Scotland would once and for, for all put an end to the demands for independence and lo and behold, behold it simply created a snowball impact. Now, um, I think what we've seen latterly, because and precisely because of what uh, Nicholas said, is that uh, Brexit, because of the impact it's had on Scottish politics, has created this fascination now in Whitehall and in Westminster and UK central government in restoring the union. And that has le led to, uh, I mean, it was re reading the Queen's speech and the notes that went with it the other day, um, large discussion about England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland as a new concept, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, which are now to be funded more than for years directly from London. So we now going to have funding streams, UK government's going to spend in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland in a way that was, hasn't happened really since uh, 1999. So I do think that there is, you, know, you can easily see this as a reversion to the UK as a, from moving back from being a quasi-federal country to being a more, more of a unitary state. But, and, and by the way, reinforcing this um, is of course even something trade deals in the news at the moment. So it's intriguing that Liz Truss speaks on behalf of the United Kingdom. She is doing deals with Australia and other countries on behalf of the UK. And it can only be done like that. Uh, the UK, because of the single market, is a single market. And consequently, she comes back with a deal or does a deal with Australia. And then it kicks off and it's on farming today about crofters and um, the Scottish um, sheep industry. And, and, it, and that's it, how it begins. And then it, so then it plays out through UK politics around the cabinet table tomorrow. But it, so it's the UK government now asserting its power over Scotland uh, via trade deals. Now, that's an intriguing byproduct of the way in which um, UK politics has evolved. I can't think of any other way of doing trade deals unless you allow Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to do their own. And you can't. So it will, this will all reinforce the move back towards the unitary state. Now, two other points. The point that the, the, the issue of the opposition has been raised. And I do think that, uh, and going to what Meg said, which I 100% agree with, that 
Um, what we've seen, there was some discussion in the early moments of the COVID pandemic about whether there should be a national government. And what we've ended up with is a national government, but with the opposition not in the government. So if you listen to what Labour front benches say, opposition front benches say, it almost always boils down to the government should have done this earlier and more of it. That's it. That's their sole position on pretty well everything. And so, and more than that, it's not just that the opposition is now effectively co-opted into government, but, and this is going slightly beyond the theme of the day, we happen for historic reasons to be going through a period where the major opposition party in Britain is weak and has no apparent chance of winning any immediately forthcoming general election. So that gives us some of the elements of a, of a country with a, a kind of fixed weather pattern of national government where that can't immediately, in most people's uh, mind's eye, be imagined. So no wonder they've come up with some of the things Catherine's talking about, because they not only look and feel as if they're in power with a big majority, and as Meg says, it doesn't come to Parliament very often, but more than that, you know, they can reasonably think that, even with this Prime Minister or another one, given the remarkable capacity of the Conservative Party to change policies, leaders, and whatever it is, to stay in power that this government might well be in power for some time to come. So no wonder they can assert themselves. So um, I think and the, the other thing to note is that even the modest efforts within England to move towards greater devolution have disappeared without trace. So the devolution white paper was never published and it's now to be replaced by a levelling up document of some kind. And levelling up, like spending in Scotland, is mostly about spending money, grants, moving civil servants, it's all the UK government doing things. So if we stand back from all of this, can the constitution hold? Well, it can do, but I do think that the government is playing quite a kind of, it's a, it's a very high stakes game, all of this, because by further centralizing power at Westminster and Whitehall, which I don't think either Leave or Remain voters thought was what anybody was voting for in 2016. It begs the question of whether you can govern a country of 66 million people, or even just England, a country of 55 million people, by a kind of effectively with the prime minister as the mayor of England, which is kind of where we've ended up really. Massive amount of power at the center of a very centralized government now being further centralized. And it's a big test, so it can hold, but it's a big, big stress on it, in my view. That's a brilliant opening. Um, I want to get into the questions, but I think there are two big themes emerging from the questions. One of which is about the threats of independence, Scotland, border poll potentially in Northern Ireland, as a consequence of the protocol, again, turbocharged by Brexit. And the second bit is about whether, and lots of, lots of debate going on in the chat about whether a written constitution is a sort of academic dream uh, that would do nothing in reality, whether it's feasible and things like that. So let's turn to the first. Um, I think Gordon Brown has been suggesting some sort of much more genuinely federal arrangements would actually be the way to diffuse, uh, maybe we should say shoot the nationalist fox, wasn't that what George Robertson said? devolution would do obviously that shot slightly missed and is somewhere in the heather but um if we're uh, if we think about that is there a feasible 
federal settlement, given as Tony mentioned, the UK is 66 million, but England is 55 million. And even though Andy Brennan may be king of the North, um, the number of places, even with that sort of uh, visible local government in England is, in, is pretty rare. Nicola, is there a feasible federal counter offer that could perhaps persuade many of, uh, of your fellow voters in Scotland that this offered a better future than independence if they were ever given the choice? Very difficult to envisage that. I think more realistic would be a counter offer that was something like a stronger version of home rule. Um, the problem with a federal offer is that it's a very, very long way from where we start. Um, Meg was talking about, and, and Catherine was talking about the importance of parliamentary sovereignty, and you would effectively be bringing um, parliamentary sovereignty to an end if you were to introduce a federal solution, or you would maintain it but divide it. Um, so combining federalism with parliamentary sovereignty as it is currently understood is not possible. Um, but one of the reasons why I don't think this is a particularly effective counter offer to nationalist minded Scots is that um, a federal type solution and restructuring along federal lines is probably not going to enhance the authority of Scotland within the United Kingdom, given, it's, given the relative size of the population. If you think of some, one of the institutional reforms that's often associated with federalism is reform of the House of Lords into a, a chamber of the nations and regions. Now, I'm not suggesting that that would not be a positive thing in and of itself, but it's very unlikely to enhance the voice of Scotland as a nation within the United Kingdom. So I don't see it as being a particularly effective counter offer and I think any any of these sorts of constitutional reforms have to bear in mind that the United Kingdom however it is structured is a plurinational state so unless you have something that recognizes the national identities going back to the, the discussion you were all having yesterday um, that are evident uh, across the United Kingdom then it's unlikely to, to be seen as a resolution um, or something that can accommodate um, national feeling um, as we see it within Scotland. And Nicola, what, Nicola, what exactly is home rule? <laughs> How is it different from what we sometimes call Devo Max? Is it, is it just a synonym for Devo Max? <clears throat> what would it mean Scotland could do that it can't now do? Well, it depends on how you define it. And I mean, all that Home Rule or DWOMAX means is something that is the maximum amount uh, or a stronger version of political autonomy for the smaller nations of the United Kingdom or possibly even for the largest nation of the United Kingdom um, short of independence. But precisely what it means depends on what arrangements were made. DWOMAX that we hear about often in the, uh, in the debates doesn't actually mean anything unless you give it content. Um, so sometimes it's talked about as maybe having something like that on a ballot paper in a future referendum on Scotland's future, which I have no particular problem with at all, as long as you say what it means. 
and how you would actually be able to to deliver on all of those things. And the same goes for independence, actually. You have, I think it's um, an obligation on all those suggesting any sort of change that they see what they think it means and how it could actually be delivered. So Meg, do you see any possibilities in uh, the sort of thing uh, Nicola was mentioning about House of Lords reform? After all, the US specifically has this very, very um, unproportional Senate to amplify the voices of rural states, uh, many now red states. Um, is there nothing that could be done? Uh, I think Australia does a similar thing with its Senate. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to answer that, but I would just like to jump in and, and say something else first, which is yeah. having listened to the other speakers. I think we've heard the term parliamentary sovereignty banded around a lot. I think probably everybody's used that term now. Uh, and I think that members of the audience may be getting a bit confused about, about what this means, and particularly the fact that I spoke about how Parliament was being sidelined, and then Catherine spoke about how the government insists that parliamentary sovereignty must be the guiding principle. Well, surely, how do those two things fit together? And I think that they don't, really. And the reason that they don't is because we've got into a terrible confusion about what parliamentary sovereignty means, and actually, in a sense, even what Parliament means... Um, because what the government is defending really is executive sovereignty. You know, I mean, it's ironic again, to use that word, that in the Brexit campaign, there were arguments that we wanted to return sovereignty to Parliament. <laughs> but actually, as soon as the vote had taken place and Parliament started getting awkward about the implementation of the result, then Parliament became very controversial. And the, the sovereignty that I think that ministers are really interested in claiming in the name of parliamentary sovereignty is power for themselves to act relatively unchecked. And, and uh, Jill, you, you mentioned learning about politics in the 1970s and how surely we have this very centralized hmm. state and so on. And yes, I mean, maybe it wasn't even true then, but you know, there's a lot of water under the bridge since the 1970s. In parliament, the establishment of the select committees, the decline of party cohesion, uh, the growing power of the House of Lords, parliament has become a more powerful institution. And in a, in a way, then you, have, then you had the, uh, the, the Labour government reforms of, of the 1990s, which included devolution. And although there was never really a guiding principle for those reforms, articulated, which Labour was criticised for, it was, if there was a guiding principle, it was really about dispersal of power. Uh, and I think now, if there's a guiding principle for this government, it's about centralisation of power again. Um, and I think probably we all agree on that. And that's very difficult to do once you've got a parliament that's used to flexing its muscles and once you have devolved. Um, and in answer to your question, sorry about the House of Lords, I think yeah, it is very, very difficult to kind of put the genie back in the bottle on these things. Um, I mean, there are other countries, yes, the, we, the typical federal second chamber um, gives an equal number of seats to each of the geographical areas, and it gives fairly equal powers between the two chambers, so that in a sense, the, um, the decentralized parts can keep a check on the central government um, in institutions. Um, and there are some happy stories there, like the ones that you've told, or relatively happy stories like the US and, and Australia, but there are also some quite unhappy stories of where other, uh, other countries have tried to implement this kind of arrangement, like in Spain, for example, where you have much, and Canada, where you have much more contestation about the powers of the, um, 
the subnational units. Um, and I think we're in a much more similar situation to that, that actually it requires the subnational units to agree that they're going to share the power. And once you have a nationalist movement whose, whose objective is to break away uh, from the state, they don't want to share power with anybody. They want to run their own country. Um, and once you've got to that point, it's quite difficult to get buy-in um, from all of the different bits of the nation to cooperate. Um, so I think that horse may have bolted. It's a, it is a good principle. Uh, it, it, as Nicola says, um, it has merits, but I cannot see how we get there now, really. Tony, do you think there's anything that could be done to reshape the internal governance of the UK to diffuse the sort of various nationalist ticking bombs going off in Scotland and the potential uh, potential for uh, moves in Northern Ireland, which is certainly very unstable at the moment. You know, could I, I more radical devolution in England be the answer that would um, solve this? Well, I can't, I mean, it's a great question. I can't, I, for reasons Meg just spelled out, I can't quite see how, in a sense, whatever one could do in England could quite sort out or have any direct impact on the politics of Scotland. I mean, I think that's the, the challenge. So you could have a more developed, I mean, in some ways, and going back to the point, you, know, you can have, you can imagine a Senate, that I must say, I occasionally played, being sad in it, they played this game myself. I mean, what would the balance be between England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland in the Senate? 25, 25, 25, 25? That doesn't sound very fair to the English, does it? On the other hand, Anything other than that kind of takes you away from the logic of what we're trying to do here, and certainly the logic of the US Senate, you know, the two members per, per state. But even then you're stuck with, eight, as you know, 85% of the MPs in the Commons, if it's still the dominant chamber, uh, with the power. But then England can't assert itself in the Commons, because if it did, that would be the end of everything. So, um, I, I, you, you know, I can see perfectly respectable reforms in England that could improve the government of England. You know, the earlier mentioned Andy Burnham and other city regional mayors believe you can't have an effective levelling up policy without devolution. And I have some sympathy with that view. But the truth is, we'd have to reform the whole of local government in England to do that, to create a sort of two tier system throughout England of a new kind. And by that time, everything else would have moved on. So, you know, there are arguments, good arguments in England for more devolution. But I think the question of Scotland's future, Northern Ireland, you're quite right, Jill, to bring up Northern Ireland, which we slightly skirted, Northern Ireland's future, and indeed Wales's future. You know, these are three separate, separate, three separate other issues and important ones. And Catherine, you've briefly mentioned the Internal Market Bill, now of course the Internal Market Act, and uh, which certainly is massively disliked by the uh, governments of Scotland and Wales who withheld their consent, Nicola's civil convention. Um, I, I just wonder whether you see a role for the courts in diffusing rows between the different parts of the UK on some of these issues. And we haven't had that much, but we have had cases brought first in Scotland, uh, like the prorogation case, 
um, then going up to the Supreme Court for decision after being uh, given the go-ahead, I think, in the Scottish Lower Court. Um, you know, is, is there a big role for the courts in arbitrating and maybe making the settlement a bit less uneven between the constituent parts of the UK? Well, you're absolutely right. Of course, the courts have been dragged into all of these. They've been dragged into, of course, um, the uh, Miller 2 case. They were dragged into the question about the Scottish Continuity Bill. Uh, they're likely to be dragged into any attempt um, to have um, a, a referendum on Scot Scottish independence about uh, the compatibility of that with the Scotland Act. So there's plenty for the courts to do. But the trouble is, once you have the courts taking such important constitutional decisions, the role that in other systems a constitutional court plays, then this already raises the question, who on earth are these judges and what rights have they got to say these things? And you've already seen um, Boris Johnson, after his um, defeat in the Miller II case, coming out and saying, we really need to take a bit more seriously who these judges are, what right they've got to say it, look at the American system, shouldn't we have uh, a much more transparent approach to the uh, um, appointment of judges and have the equivalent of parliamentary or Senate hearings so you can get to see um, what these judges are, who these judges are and what they're doing, what they believe, which will help steer uh, uh, them in making these very important constitutional decisions. And of course, that requires a really dramatic change um, in the approach uh, to the appointment of the judiciary. And of course, we have taken a very different line on the independence of the judiciary. And our, the, our independent judiciary comes from having highly skilled specialists um, who go through a highly um, uh, detailed selection process. But you do not know the political um, sentiments of any judges. And you do not see them publicizing at all what their, their political views are. But you do not see judges on Twitter at all. I think they are passive users of Twitter and other social media, but you never see them expressing their views because they are so sensitive to this accusation. Um, but you can well imagine that if the Supreme Court, through no choice of its own, because remember, the Supreme Court doesn't go out to find cases. They come to it. They don't have any choice about having to hear these cases. And you do understand why people go to the courts, because if they feel that the parliamentary system is broken, or they feel that the parliamentary system doesn't let them get their voice heard, then they have to look for alternatives. And so therefore they go to the courts and then you get the accusation that the courts are being politicized. Now, I think that's being too much bandied about because as we saw in Miller, the government's argument was Miller too, that was the one about um, the five week prorogation of parliament. Miller too, the government said, well, this is a holly, political matter and therefore the courts have no jurisdiction to hear it. Now the courts took the view that what this case was really about was the scope of the prerogative power which is a legal issue but of course that's quite a nuanced argument and it's very easy to see as they are look the courts have got stuck into something really political particularly in the middle of that incredibly febrile atmosphere in the autumn of 2019 when it looked like our whole constitution was um, this going up in flames. So if our whole constitution was going up in flames and we think this sort of rather rickety sort of makeshift constitution uh, that Nicola so uh, brilliantly described right at the start, um, top ranked question from Adam Isaacs, is it time to have a proper written constitution for the UK? 
So, Catherine, that always sounds like great news for lawyers, but what are, what are the sort of pros and cons of actually having a written... What would it actually mean to have a proper written constitution as opposed to, to this? We do have this sort of slightly odd document called the Cabinet Manual, which is almost like a sort of stapled together set of conventions that Gus O'Donnell sort of invented when he thought there might be a minority government. Um, you know, what would a proper constitution look like? I then want to come on to the rest of you about what might go in it and um, how you might go about developing it if there was any sort of popular appetite along the lines maybe of the Scottish Constitutional Convention we saw back in the 1990s. But Catherine, what are the pros and cons of having a written constitution? What actually is it and what's different from what we have now? When we think about a written constitution, we often think about the US constitution, foundation document that has been tweaked a number of times. The arguments in favour is it sets out the rights very clearly of individuals. It also sets out very clearly the separation of uh, functions between the different parts of government. And uh, it's also seen to be stable. Uh, it's stable because it's very difficult to amend the constitution because usually most constitutions have some sort of um, supermajority threshold uh, across the different elements of the constitutional setup. So a two-thirds majority before anything can change. And of course, it's very difficult to hit two-thirds majority, which is why uh, the constitution doesn't change. Argument in favour um, would be clarity and legal certainty. And uh, it would um, give uh, the public uh, something that they could accede to, they could see it as a statement of their values. And indeed, if you ask um, American students, as I often do, you know, what are the things that they're most proud of about being American, a surprising number will often say it's the US Constitution. So there is clearly an identity issue, there's clearly also um, something which they can rally around. So those are broadly the arguments in favour. The arguments against are that it's blooming difficult to do. And um, how on earth do you set about drawing up a constitution? Do you have a constitutional assembly? Do you have a group of the great and good? Or do you have perhaps even more in, um, innovative to have a, a, a group of the great and bad um, to see if you can get something really quite radical? Uh, the other argument against is that when you, the constitution in order to be agreed is at incredibly high level. So it will say something like there's a right to life. And I think all of us could probably sign up to the fact there's a right to life. But the moment that you start to ask the more difficult questions, like, for example, um, well, does a right to life extend to keeping somebody on a life support machine, even though uh, they have no uh, quality of life next? How does the constitution deal with that? And that inevitably means you go to the courts to get some definitive ruling and you drag the courts back into the frame. And then the courts are having to make these uh, highly sensitive, um, essentially policy choices that were ducked by the drafters of the constitution because all they could agree on was the high level right to life and they couldn't agree on all the footnotes that should go with it. Meg, how do you go about constitution making? If we decided we wanted a written constitution, uh, is there a view of what's good practice about constitution making? Is there anyone whose constitution we could regard as a useful first draft to be working from? I think the Canadians wrote their constitution much more recently than the US. Uh, we impose constitution on with the allies on Germany. Are there places we should be looking to for good practice if we wanted to go down this route? And do you think it's well, feasible? I, I don't think there's anybody who's been through 
an experience that's similar to our recent experience, really. I mean, I think Catherine makes the case really well for the, the arguments for and against a written constitution. And I'm, I'm inclined to think that, you know, the goal is quite an attractive one. But as she says, the road to get there is a very, very difficult one. And, and the question was, is now the moment? And I think you can make a really good case for actually why now isn't the moment. Because if you're going to get agreement on a, on a constitution, um, it really needs to be very widespread agreement and we have been very very divided you know all of these all of these issues that we're discussing about um the devolution settlement the powers of the house of lords the membership of the house of lords you could talk about the role of the monarchy um the prime minister's prerogative powers you know we can with the role of referendums there are a huge number of things probably more than at any other other time in my lifetime that are quite fundamental to what the rules of our system should be which are currently in dispute and that is a very, very difficult environment in which to get agreement. At the same time, I, I think um, one mustn't be entirely defeatist and to talk about these things would be healthy. And I think that one of the things that we have seen in, in recent years is, is a lot of sort of clashes between different people on the political stage. And we've seen a very dangerous, I think, polarization along Brexit lines, which has been very well documented by people like Sarah Holbolt at, at LSE, um, the extent to which we have become two tribes. And post-Brexit, um, I think we need to bring those tribes back together and get them understanding each other. And actually sitting down and having a discussion about some of the core principles of our constitution would be a good thing to do. Um, and actually is something that the constitution unit is working on because we've got an, a new project, uh, which is in, in, in partnership to some extent with the UK and a changing Europe called Democracy in the UK post Brexit, which is going to ask people what they want uh, through opinion polling and also through holding a citizens assembly. And to me, there are a lot of issues on the agenda here. A citizen assembly to deal with all of them would be a huge undertaking, you know, taking on board the devolution points as well as the points that Catherine and I have been emphasizing on, emphasizing. We're gonna focus primarily on the, on the latter, which is how those relationships should work at the core of the UK level constitution. So the role of parliament, uh, the courts, the government, and also the people in making decisions. I think having conversations about those things would be very, very valuable because we don't honestly know what people think. How do they want the executive to have untrammeled power? In what circumstances do they think in principle the court should be able to step in and which things should be left for parliament? So I think we should have those conversations, but I'm not very optimistic about the ability for us to write anything like a detailed constitution. We could maybe agree some core principles as a start, but I'm not sure we can get much further than that until we are feeling more content and united. If we decided, um, I have no idea what the answer to this is, so I'm really interested in any of you who want to pitch in. Um, if we decided that there were certain aspects of the way in which our constitutional settlement was currently working, so rather than go to you know, the theory of everything, which is this comprehensive, massive document covering you know, all the stuff that's in the US constitution or whatever, we just basically felt the need to entrench a few things like, for example, you needed some sort of supermajority in referendums so you couldn't just make it up as you go along to change voting rules, which we know the government is quite keen 
to do to reform the courts and things like that. Is there anything within the sort of, you know, Catherine keeps on quoting Dicey at me. Is there anything that you can do to build in any sort of constitutional entrenchment? We've had the thing where, you know, in theory, I think the British government could tear up the devolution settlement and say, well, it seemed like a good idea in 1998. But actually, on reflection, that didn't really work, did it? So sorry, Nicola, you haven't got a government anymore. And we've just used our majority of 80 to pass that. Um, but now I think we've got a bit more of an acceptance that that's not really acceptable, but it's not in any firm constitutional basis. Is there any sort of way of entrenching a few things we hold all self-evident and close uh, without having to go the full constitutional hog? Tony, you unmuted yourself, so I'm going to pass that one to you. Well, as, as all three other speakers know more about this than I do, this is unfortunate, but there they we can, are. They can criticise you afterwards. Yeah, I'll let can. them all come I mean, in and mock your homework. <laughs> First, I mean, I'm just building on some of what's been said. I think, um, you know, the, a certain subset of the population heavily represented here and doubtless in the audience are very interested in written constitutions and the logic of thinking about them. And I do, I totally agree with Meg. I think having the discussion about some of this would be a very good idea. But going on to what Catherine said, I mean, the idea of if it was any any way detailed, I assume it would reset almost entire the whole the entirety of UK law to some degree, and that would be very complicated. Either we stick with everything we've got, or we have to change everything. Either way around doesn't seem uh, like much uh, very plausible. So, I think there are, however, things that are broadly agreed across politics in the UK, and I will use the one, of course, as everybody will that they're most interested in personally, which is that. The UK, both across the UK and within England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland separately, is too centralised and that there would be a way of, of empowering sub-national areas that would be good for pluralism, the learning of democracy and all the things that Parliament and sub-national governments, parliaments in Edinburgh and Wales and, and Cardiff local government exist for, so that I do think it would be possible to begin to use the kind of discussion uh, that Meg was talking about to see if people, they will care about some of these things, even if they don't talk about them all the time. And then find out what they really care about. And, then, and there is quite, I mean, virtually everybody who isn't in government today believes there should be more devolved power in the United Kingdom. I mean, and everybody, that would be true in Scotland, everybody except the current government and Wales, etc. So I think we could get somewhere, uh, whether they can then be embedded in some sort of agreed constitutional text is another matter. But I do think you could get some agreement on this stuff and about the, the independence of the courts. I don't think many people deep down think the courts should be run politically in the way they don't think the police should be other than operationally independent, to take another example. But... What I don't know, and everybody else here will know, is how you might embed that in a sort of broad constitutional piece of paper. And we've got a suggestion in the paper. chat from Gina Miller, who I'm going to quote in case it is that Gina Miller, if it is uh, welcome, um, that maybe we need a core constitutional document, a high level semi-constitutional bridging document. Um, Nicola Catherine, um, would that have any any status? I mean, you know, I remember having a conversation with 
uh, with a former cabinet secretary, as I might term them, when we were in the prorogation row about the state of the cabinet manual, who was just saying, well, the Prime Minister could always just decide to withdraw it because it's uh, a document of no status, uh, which is true also of things like the ministerial code. We might come on to that. But is there any sort of halfway housey document that, that might be any use, uh, as Gina Miller appears to suggest? Catherine? Can we start? I mean, at one level, the answer is that, that any law is only as good as the system which upholds it um, and ensures that it's respected. Now, in our constitutional setup, in the Dicean world, uh, constitutional law had no special status. It was just like another type of law, like criminal law or contract law. It's just a, a bunch of rules um, which can be amended at any time by Parliament. In fact, what has happened over the last 20 or 30 years is you've seen these statutes, um, uh, European Communities Act, the Evolution Statutes, um, your, uh, the Human Rights Act and probably now the 2018 Act, EU Withdrawal Act, have been called what's called um, constitutional um, statutes. And because they have this slightly special nature, special label, it means that the courts um, are reluctant to say that they have been accidentally repealed. And they do lean on, they do require uh, the later Act of Parliament to say explicitly that we are reversing the Scotland Act, for example. You can't do it accidentally. So these constitutional statutes do have a slightly, slightly higher status, but it's only slightly higher. It's not in a proper, robust constitutional sense. They have a slightly higher status, but that slightly higher status can probably be knocked on the head if the later Act of Parliament explicitly says, right, we're, we're terminating the Scotland Act 1998. And going back to the very basics that we've started with, that uh, because this government is so keen on parliamentary sovereignty, which of course means, as they very clearly put it, that parliamentary sovereignty, because you've got such a strong um, majority in the House, is essentially executive sovereignty. No wonder the government's very keen on it, because it means that they can get done what they want without the inconvenience of having to look at broader constitutional principles. Nicola, is there, is there any sort of offer on constitution writing that might attract Scots who are, you know, unhappy at the way in which the UK government can proceed, you know, on the trade deal, for instance, without even really taking into account Scottish interests? We had Ian Blackford talking about profiters this morning. Um, is there any sort of constitutional offer that could be made that might be attractive or even maybe just a big open and generous offer to Nicola Sturgeon to join a constitution writing project, which probably tie her up for the rest of her I, career? Um, I really think this is the worst time possible to think about codifying a constitution. I mean, my, my view on this question in general is um, that I'm quite ambivalent ambivalent and I don't think there's anything particularly beneficial about having a codified constitution as to not having a codified constitution because it very much depends on what's in it and if you think that having a constitution writing exercise is the route to saving the union um, I, I think that's that's highly unlikely um, to be the case not least to, um, Catherine I think was mentioning um, part of having a codified constitution is working out how you then amend it 
in the future when you want to amend it. And trying to agree an amending formula for a constitution in such an asymmetric plurinational state will be absolutely filled with controversy. Somebody mentioned Canada. Yes, you're right. I think it was you, Jill. The Canadian constitution um, dates back to 1982 when it was repatriated. That was an incredibly controversial um, thing to do in Canada and ultimately what brought Canada to the brink of the 1995 referendum because that whole process uh, was not consented to um, within Quebec. So try to think about it for a moment. How do you agree an amending formula? Do we do it simply on the basis of majority vote in Parliament? Or do we say that two or three or all of the constituent territories have to agree? Uh, in which case, can that's you imagine Welsh, a scenario that's where... What, that's sort of what the Welsh suggested, wasn't it? It the, is. Well, no, 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 it's not quite. They, so in, in an intergovernmental context, they suggested um, co-decision by um, the UK government plus one other, yeah. which is also problematic because you're then asking devolved governments to um, cede authority for areas of their competence to other people. Th and so I think, I think, I think it's exactly really, good. really difficult. Um, but it gives Wales quite a lot of power though, I think, because Wales, I think, probably- Potentially, potentially, vote. potentially it would, yes. And yes, come on to the, to the vision of, of the Welsh vision of the United Kingdom, um, if, if, you, if you want to, but there are clear tensions in the relationships between the different parts of the United Kingdom. And I fail to see how a constitution writing exercise um, could address these fundamental areas where there is a lack of consensus about the United Kingdom system. And I, it's difficult to know what the alternative is. I, I'm struggling to see where you get agreement on reforms to the United Kingdom unless and until the issue of independence is addressed again in another referendum. The problem with all of that, of course, is that if that independence referendum led to a second defeat uh, for independence, then you lose the leverage that might have helped to shape and reform uh, the constitution in the first place. Okay, so I'm taking out of that sort of round a general view that even if you were to embark on this project with sort of potentially mixed benefits and downsides, this is not the best time for it, but we're all keeping our eyes on uh, on the Constitution Units project, because that sounds extraordinarily interesting there. Um, various questions about the sort of, you know, maybe remedying some of the, some of the deficiencies perceived. Catherine, on individual rights, um, do we feel we haven't got the ECJ, except for certain aspects of the Northern Ireland of the withdrawal agreement, uh, do we think there are adequate protections for individual rights? And would it make a difference if the government, you know, decided to leave the European Convention, change the Human Rights Act and things like that? I think um, certainly leaving the European Union has, objectively speaking, deprived people of more rights than I think has ever happened in history and crucially has also deprived individuals of their ability to enforce their rights. You've lost those key concepts of direct effect and supremacy of EU law. You've also lost that ability to say, look, um, UK law is incompatible with, for example, 
um, the EU equality directives and therefore you just rely on EU equality directives and you get your rights. All of that's been turned off subject to the rather um, intriguing provisions in the 2018 EU Withdrawal Act, which do, do still retain uh, supremacy and direct effect of EU retained law, um, so long as it's not being repealed by Parliament. Um, in respect of the uh, European Convention on Human Rights, this enforcement mechanism is somewhat different, but nevertheless, again, if we decide to leave that, uh, even, or at least repeal the Human Rights Act, even if we don't leave the Convention, um, it will make life much more difficult for individuals to enforce their rights. And I should say um, that under the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, that's the agreement that was concluded on Christmas Eve, there is no possibility of individual enforcement of rights. Um, it's all state to state dispute resolution. So if, for example, I find I'm being discriminated against while I'm providing services in France, um, there is uh, nothing I can do under the TCA to help me unless um, the uh, French law itself allows me some protection. Uh, so um, what we're seeing, having left the EU, with the exception of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is still very much governed by chunks of EU law and EU law methods, is uh, a reduction of individual rights. And of course, now what we're also seeing is quite serious challenge, potential challenge to judicial review and the ability to bring judicial review claims. Now, the government would say, no, we're not doing that. We're, we're, indeed, we're um, encouraging judicial review to control the executive, but just judicial review can't be brought in cases like um, Gina Miller's. Um, but actually what they're proposing to limit um, are highly technical things that will not get people out on the streets. They're trying to limit um, the uh, period of uh, when an administrative decision can be declared to be invalid. I won't go into the detail here, but these are highly technical matters um, which will limit the utility and effectiveness of judicial review, but nevertheless take quite a lot of explaining to, to explain to individuals how they're losing their rights there as well. So will we see law professors on the streets about this or? There's, uh, well, law professors are currently writing in the FT to express their grave concerns. That's their equivalent, like, Catherine. That's their radical, equivalent. As radical as law professors get. <laughs> Tony, um, we've had a lot in recent weeks about ministerial behaviour, Dominic Cummings, uh, Meg was mentioning the sort of, you know, removal of top civil servants, though, interestingly, their replacement with people who looked quite like the people that had been moved on, but a bit of a sense of, uh, of you know, if not intimidation, um, uh, ideological cleansing, I don't know, but, uh, but certainly changes in personnel there. Uh, a sense that the rules on behaviour don't quite work, you know, a sense that ministerial accountability, responsibility wasn't quite what it was. Is there anything that can be done, done there to the restore the balance back to what we might have thought it was? Better rules, protect impartiality? Well, well I think a lot of this, like, like and this point's been made earlier to, this afternoon, a lot of what we're discussing, discussing depends rests to some degree on public trust, public confidence, and the, the willingness of all of us to, to accept all of these systems as they are. And so long as the government of the day, this one, can get a lot, get away with what it's doing, and it's you know 10 to 15 percent ahead in the polls, apart from the, and I'm, I'm intrigued myself in all of this at this particular moment, the role of 
you know, a, a small band of senior backbench conservative MPs who have a lot of power in the world that we're discussing here to check things or not to check things. But against that backdrop, um, you know, I think that ministers, it's hard to judge whether you know, it's easy to believe that what's going on in politics today is worse than anything's ever been. And I doubt that somehow. I just think it just always looks like that because we're so close to it and familiarity and all of that. And you know more about this. You should be answering this question, Jill. But separately, um, I think this will there'll be a self-writing mechanism at the point when the opposition becomes more powerful in the UK Parliament and where... Um, members of the government party themselves believe, and some of them do articulate these views, that some of this stuff doesn't quite feel right. So I do think it's partly a matter of a relatively new government with a big majority after all the awkwardness that came before, and a rather weak opposition in able to articulate any clear line on the kind of issues you've just raised. Um, I think the civil service, which is always thought to be an impediment to everything, will itself reassert itself. As you said, many of the people who've been appointed to replace the people who were removed look like the people who were removed in general terms. Um, and quite a lot of, it's interesting, it's a separate issue here about how much the civil service, particularly the cabinet secretaries, become a kind of umpire in British, um, as a kind of quasi-judicial function as a sort of internal umpire on how all, all this stuff's working. And Simon Case, as we know, has got quite a lot on his plate in that regard as we speak. I think you might feel a bit more like the football than the umpire at the moment sometimes. Okay. But, uh, anyway, being kicked around by both sides. But, uh, but Meg, um, Parliament, is there anything Parliament can do to, particularly in the light of the government's majority, to sort of reassert itself? I mean, does that depend, as Tony was saying, on on basically a few influential Conservative senior backbenchers, or do you see any prospect for Parliament saying we'll actually have some of that control? Thank you. I think there is space for that to happen. And, and Tony is quite right that in the end, the power lies with Conservative backbenchers. But Parliament is a, is a very complicated place with a lot of very subtle mechanisms that operate that most people on the outside are unaware of. I mean, for example, one of my areas is the House of Lords. Well, you know, the House of Lords is not in charge, um, but the House of Lords does have the power to put awkward issues back on the agenda of the House of Commons, which it tried to do, for example, in the Internal Market Bill. And I, I think we were heading for quite a clash there if the government hadn't backed down um, due to having reached its, its ultimate deal, because I'm not sure the Lords was going to back down. But it can put things on the agenda of the House of Commons, which requires government backbenchers to think about whether they really support them. And again, I, you know, I strongly agree with Tony that public opinion is really key here. So we've got some big issues coming up, the planning, these kinds of things, which are very controversial on the government backbenches, which are going to um, be things that the members of the public care about and to a significant extent understand, and they will be putting pressure on backbenchers. And those mechanisms can work quite well. And very often what you get is not a defeat in the House of Commons, not embarrassment. When things are working properly, backbenchers are communicating behind the scenes and ministers are withdrawing proposals which are not going to get their support. Now, I think those mechanisms are not working well at the moment. I think there are elements in this government that don't fundamentally understand how those dynamics work. 
And I think that the communications have been operating very badly under COVID with everybody scattered. But I think that when Parliament comes back, there are actually plenty of opportunities, notwithstanding the 80 seat majority for Conservative backbenchers to keep a check on some of this stuff. And I think they have a serious responsibility to do so as well, because as I said at the start, there are some slightly worrying signs of familiar patterns from backsliding around the world, which is boosted by having a polarised electorate. And there is a temptation that uh, the government seeks to set people against each other, that it demonises the opposition, that it dismantles democratic checks. That is a very, very dark road to be on. And I think that Conservative backbenchers, some of them are quite aware of that. And it, they are the ones in the end who will adjudicate. And Nicola, final question to you. I realise I'm a minute over time. Um, Scotland, after all, is the thing that opposes, imposes the immediate existential threat to the constitution, to the union. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon now has, uh, she would say, her mandate to ask for the right to hold independence referendum. UK government, we're told, is absolutely adamantly saying no. Do you see a way of resolving that or is it actually in both sides' interest to have a bit of prolonged uh, standoff on this um, for the next five years or so? Yeah, I, I don't think the threat is immediate. Um, I think there's actually been an outbreak of consensus um, that now is not the right time to be doing this because everyone's focus is on COVID. And actually, I detect a slight change of narrative from uh, certain UK government ministers since the elections. They're not saying that they consent to this at all, but nor are they saying no, ni never. Um, so I, I don't know, what, I don't think anything will happen this side of a general election. Um, what happens after that? I don't know, I'm hesitant to say, but perhaps if I can just add one thing. Um, there's been, the Internal Market Act has been raised a few times um, and um, most of the focus and controversy around that act was um, the implications for the Northern Ireland Protocol that were there in the initial legislation. But let's not forget that the primary purpose of that act was to change the, the reach of, of devolved laws so that they cannot um, introduce barriers to the UK internal market, to the domestic market across the United Kingdom. And there is deep concern within Scotland and Wales in particular, um, within the devolved governments, that this undermines their authority. And we don't really know the extent to which that is the case, but we will find out within the next few years. And I think that's an area to watch out for in particular. And it's an area that is likely uh, to play out in the courts. So Internal Market Act, possibly more of an immediate threat to the union than an independence referendum. Uh, sounds like an essay for discussion for all of your students when you go back to teaching. Anyway, I'm going to close it there. Thank so much to everybody for all your fantastic questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to them all individually. Uh, hopefully we touched on the subjects that you were really interested in. But above all, enormous thanks to our fantastic panel, Meg Russell, Nicola McEwen, Catherine Barnard, and uh, our token man today, Tony Travers. Thank you all so much for participating. Remember, tomorrow we are looking at what the uh, current state of British politics is for the political parties. So do tune in and remember to ask the experts, including Nicola, on return on Friday. Thanks very much.